Have you ever gotten on your knees to pray or, or sat down to pray or whatever posture it is you take to pray? Have you ever, ever begun to pray? Prayed with feeling for everything you could think about to pray for. Certain you were there for an hour and looked up and discovered that only three minutes had gone by? This morning, we are going to see one of the most incredible prayers in the New Testament. And I pray that as we look at this prayer of Paul's, that it would do two things for us. He prays specifically, really for the spiritual maturity of the church. And I pray that from it, we would see what spiritual maturity is with perfect clarity and that we would long for it. That we would recognize that no matter where we are, we can grow in our faith and we should desire to grow. The second thing is I, I pray that we would be instructed by how Paul prays. So that our prayers would be deep and spiritually mature. If you remember last week, as we were looking at verses 3 through 8 of Philippians chapter 1, I talked a little bit about how Paul prayed. That he prayed with thankfulness and joy. And that there's an urgency to his prayer life. There's consistency. He talks about how he always prayed for them with joy. It's a sort of joyful desperation. Two things that we don't think of as going together very often. My prayer is that our prayers would become like that. That as we pray for each other, that as I pray for each of you as a church here, and that as we pray for each other and as we pray for our missionaries, that we would learn how to pray from Paul. So let's look at it together this morning. If you need a pew Bible today, page 980, page 980 is where I'm going to be, and it's Philippians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 11, and then we'll go through it. It's Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul writes, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. At the most basic level, the single thing Paul prays for is love. And perhaps the greatest hindrance to our spiritual growth is apathy or a lack of love. Many of us are caught up not so much in some grave and obvious sin, but we simply lack interest in the things of God. It's easier when we start the day to turn on the radio or the TV and be distracted by weather reports and momentary news updates than it is to thoughtfully meditate on Scripture. It's easier... To have our opinions handed to us by our favorite radio and TV hosts or even some of our favorite pastors to just find out how we should think about 
immigration for just one example. It's difficult to have your mind renewed so that you are discerning. But difficulty is unimportant to people in love. Think for a second of your of your fairy tales. Our fairy tales, we put people through the most absurd and awful tests in order to prove their love. Princes have to cut through miles of thorn bushes surrounding towers with no stairs and fire-breathing dragons, and not a single prince ever quits. Why? Because his true love is on the other side of those bushes at the top of that tower held captive by that dragon. Of course a man should fight for the woman he loves. If you don't like fictitious illustrations, look at Genesis. Jacob in the Bible. He sees a woman and falls in love with her. And her father says, all right, work for me seven years and you can marry her. My wife and I dated for four years, and I thought that was an eternity. Jacob works for seven years, and it's recorded in Scripture. It says it only felt like a few days to him because he loved her so much. Some of you love classic cars. In youth group, just think about about a week ago, Dave Padgett was talking about a guy found, I think it was a Mustang. Was it a Mustang? It's in a field practically immersed in mud, and it looked like a piece of trash. And he had to take it all the way down to the frame and rebuild it from the frame up until it became something incredibly beautiful. If you asked me to do that, I would say, not on my Saturday. That's crazy. That's a ridiculous amount of work. But if you love cars, and if you love what you can do with a Mustang, it doesn't even feel like work. My wife spends what seems to me a crazy amount of time looking at crochet patterns. She makes little bunnies and little owls, and she makes hats, and she makes scarves. I'm glad that she does this. This is not a knock on my wife. But I'm telling you that when I look at what she does, I think, why? Because she loves doing it. Personally, I love playing guitar. When I need a little bit of downtime, I love to sit with an instrument and you may be under the mistaken impression that it sounds nice. It doesn't sound nice. It sounds like a tone-deaf trombone player. I will attempt to learn difficult songs and techniques that to anyone who hears me playing sound awful. And yet hours will go by and I won't realize it because I love what I'm trying to create and what I'm trying to do. People in love don't mind difficulty. In fact, to them, difficult work doesn't even seem like work. And so Paul prays first that their love 
would abound more and more. Not just simply that they would have love, but that their love would be continually added to. There's no point in your Christian life where you'll reach a place where you have enough of this love and you can stop. Paul says he prays that their love abounds more and more. It's infinite. You can always add to your love. But the love he prays for is not just love in a general sense. He prays that their love would manifest two qualities. See it again there in verse 9. He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and with all discernment. Knowledge could refer just generally in the most general possible way to information. Christians have been and should be dedicated to learning about everything. But in the context, Paul is talking about knowledge that is connected with faith. He prays that the church would have a heart to learn what is true in the deepest sense. And this knowledge is found more than anywhere else in the scriptures themselves. It means that he wants believers to become familiar with parts of the Bible they don't know well. It means he wants them to relearn parts that seem familiar and to see them with fresh eyes. It means that you should ponder what you see like you would rack your brain for a crossword puzzle. Pause and reflect with me for just a moment about what the Bible contains. It's a book of 66 short books and it contains history Prophecy, poetry, and letters. Wisdom books like Job talk about the problem of evil and suffering with the reality that God is all-powerful. Why do people suffer? Ecclesiastes ponders the meaning of life and asks quite honestly if there is any point in it at all. The Song of Solomon talks about the mystery of love. Proverbs talks about ethics. The great questions that philosophers like Plato and Aristotle wrestle with, that philosophers today are still wrestling with, are all addressed within the pages of Scripture with incredible depth, with nothing less than the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We would be fools to not study these books with diligence. And if that seems too cerebral, if it's too academic, realize that there are also love stories. There are the histories of war. There are heroes. There are giants. There are floods. The life of the Son of God in the flesh, who walked on water, healed the lame, gave sight to the blind, died for your sins, and rose from the dead, is all contained within this book. We need to know more about our Savior. Our love should motivate a quest for greater knowledge. There is a wealth of knowledge here that none of us 
will be able to exhaust, but all of us can grow in. But let me add this. While Paul is praying for knowledge, he also warns in 1 Corinthians 13 that knowledge without love is worthless. You can know the scriptures incredibly well and fail to be loving. Paul's priority is with love that motivates knowledge, not just by knowledge by itself. He starts with love. And Paul's prayer isn't just for knowledge of the facts. He doesn't end there. The second quality that he wants this love to manifest is discernment. In other words, we shouldn't be like that kid that's fresh out of college that has all the the knowledge in the world, but has no experience in the world. We should be able to take what we read in the scriptures and apply it to our lives. So every one of those books that I just mentioned, we need to take the Song of Solomon and learn how to be better husbands and wives and teach our children how they should date. I feel like the Song of Solomon is one of the most neglected books in the pages of scripture. We almost act like it's not even in the Bible. But the reality is, we need to understand how God made us and how love should work. We need to know the Song of Solomon and have discernment to know what it looks like today in the 21st century. We need to read Job and we need to learn how to comfort those who are grieving and we need to be prepared to suffer. We need to read Proverbs and go to work and put those Proverbs in effect. We should be able to recognize the fool that Proverbs talks about. We should strive to not be the fool that Proverbs talks about. We need to read Ecclesiastes and be humbled about the real purpose of our lives. So often when we read the scriptures, we find ourselves at the center of every chapter, every verse. Read David and Goliath. And imagine ourselves to always be David. The reality is, if you read Ecclesiastes, you get the sense that you're a really small piece of this really big picture. And that God is huge. Ecclesiastes will help you think through what's really important in life. We aren't, we aren't just trying to pass a Sunday school test here. We're seeking to grow in faith in an obedience. And that starts with knowledge, but it doesn't end with knowledge. That knowledge is used in discernment. And notice what Paul says that knowledge and discernment is applied for so that they can approve what is excellent. This is verse 10, just almost word for word. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent. What does he mean by that? Why doesn't he give them a list of areas of life to apply it to? I think the reason is he intends for it to be open-ended. His intent is that we as believers would mature to a place where it does not matter what sphere of life we're in. We have the ability to take the knowledge that we've learned, to use the discernment that we've developed, and put it wherever we are in whatever walk of life we're in. Bear in mind, he is praying for the whole church, not just leaders. It's not just 
old people who are wise. It's young people who are learning. All of us, whatever walk of life we are in, need to be able to take the truths of Scripture and use the discernment that we develop to approve what is excellent. This means that what is excellent for you may be something that I've never thought of. And I, I thought specifically, what's excellent for a grandmother? How can you be an excellent grandmother? To be honest, I have no idea. That is entirely different than everything I have ever experienced. And I can't tell you. The reality is, you, if you are a grandmother, should be able to take your knowledge and your discernment and strive to be the very best grandmother that you can be in the service of Christ. And it will look different for each and every one of you. Parents who are good parents don't teach their children about absolutely everything in the world. You can't do it. Good parents teach their children to pursue knowledge and to have discernment and then to make the best choices they can in every possible area of life. That's what Paul is praying for the church. So if you're a grandmother, a grandfather, a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, it doesn't matter. If you're employed or unemployed, if you're retired, if you're in school, it doesn't matter. Paul wants you to pursue excellence in every possible sphere of life. Every person who follows Christ is faced with countless choices, all of which have eternal consequences. Paul is praying that our love would increase so that we will learn the information we need, have the discernment we need, so that in every situation, we can make the best choice. There is no room for complacency. We want what is very best in the eyes of God. And here's what amazes me most about this. I was reading a book by D.A. Carson on prayer, and he talked about this verse in particular. And he points out the reality that what's best for you may not be what's best for me. And so by not being specific, he has given us incredible freedom to use our knowledge and discernment and pursuit of excellence so that it looks differently in your life from the way it looks in my life. Let me give you a couple of examples. Think about your personal finances. What is excellent in the eyes of God about how you spend your money? Many of us strive to be frugal, to save a certain amount of money, to plan for our retirement, to give generously. In one sense, all of us need to have those most basic categories, and yet, it can and should look different for each of us. For example, if you care about the things of God and you value the ministry of the church and of our missionaries, you may be motivated to give with incredible generosity. And yet, you need to remember that it's important to take your wife on dates. And that the way you use your money in your home is also a real practical indication of your values as a believer. And God has told you to love your wife. So you need to use your money not just to give to the church and to missionaries, but to take your wife on dates. 
That's a good application. How many dates? I don't know. I don't know your relationship. It could be different. It might be monthly. It might be weekly. It should probably be more than annually. (laughs) The point is, the application of what is best will be different. And there is no excuse for complacency, but we also have to be incredibly careful about looking at our fellow believers and looking down our nose because they have done something differently than what we have done. I mentioned finances. What about vacations? How many? How long? Should you travel? Is it a waste of money? Is it a good investment? I don't know. It could be. It could be. It could be the best thing that you can do. It depends. All of us need to be faithful disciples of Christ. How that looks for each of us will be different. I wanted to use one one personal example specifically. And hear me out on this. What about your leisure time? How should you spend the time that you're not at work? What's the best way? Remember, we're talking about what's best. What's the best way for you to spend your time? Personally, I hate TV. Hate it. Every time I sit down and watch it for an hour, I stand up and regret that hour. I think of all the things I could have done. I think of all the things that irritated me about whatever it was I just saw. And it's not that I'm super picky. I recognize there are people that disagree with me about all kinds of things. And I can watch a show that has something I don't like and be okay with it. What really drives me nuts is if I'm watching something that's some sort of drama. I love good literature. I like complex characters. I like creative plots. And I have never seen either on television. So to me, I stand up and think, I could have read a book, I could have listened to a drama, I could have, there are all kinds of things I could have done, and that's an hour of my life that I'll never get back. I think it, as an invention, has harmed our society tremendously by making us antisocial. I think it's harmed our politics by making us care more about looks and performance than substance. I think it's harmed our families by keeping us from talking to each other. I think it harms us as parents. It's easier, and I I know this from experience, it's easier to put your kid in front of the TV than it is to play with them or to read to them. I hate it as an invention. So you might think that I am now going to tell you that you should not spend any of your leisure time watching it. But I have no right to do that. My wife really likes TV. And people tell me all the time about shows that they enjoy. And if my Christian brothers and sisters are pursuing Christ and they are pursuing what's excellent. And they can, with a clean conscience, sit down in front of the TV for an hour and walk away feeling refreshed. God bless them. I have no business telling them what they should do as they pursue Christ and pursue excellence. 
there is room for us to disagree about what is best. And every area that I just mentioned, whether it's finance or leisure or vacations or early retirement or working another 10 years, whatever it is that you choose to do, Paul wants you to grow in love, to grow in knowledge, to have discernment, to pursue what's excellent. And as a loving community, we should be okay when we reach disagreements about what that looks like. As we think about things that cause conflict in the church, we should be okay with recognizing that people with good intentions differ on what excellence looks like. And that should give us a greater ability to have unity. But do not misunderstand. We have to remember where Paul says this and the context that he's writing in. Paul is not saying that doctrine doesn't matter, that we can have a broad unity with people who disagree with us on substantive issues. If you deny that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead, we can and must divide fellowship over that. If you have no doubt about that, read Galatians. Paul says, if you preach another gospel, let you be condemned. Paul is not saying there's no grounds for strong disagreement. There are. But in the context of Philippians, we saw last week, they have partnered with him in the gospel. They worship at the feet of Jesus Christ. They support his gospel ministry. So there is unity around the call of God and the work of God as they spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that unity, there is great room and great freedom for disagreeing on what excellence looks like. If you think about global missions, there are missions agencies that have dozens of different strategies about how to reach the lost. Almost all of them are good. If you think about pastors, there are pastors who have different approaches to preaching the word of God. Given your context, given your church, given your ability, given your calling, it is perfectly acceptable to do different things as long as you are faithful to the text of scripture. All of us are called to pursue excellence. But that excellence has to be in unity about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not talking about some sort of false unity. Within that unity, there's a purpose for what he says. And the second, second thing that I'd like us to see today is in verse 10. All of this pursuit of knowledge, to grow in discernment, to approve what is excellent, is for a specific reason. It's actually at the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul's desire for them is to be pure and blameless before the judgment seat of Christ. The day that Christ returns and we stand before him and our works are evaluated. The implication is, if you fail to grow in love that produces knowledge and discernment, you will not be pure and you will not be blameless. You will have squandered the gifts that God has given you. You will be impure and you will bear responsibility. Don't misunderstand. This is talking to Christians who are saved. But those who are lazy and disobedient will suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ. If you doubt that, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, 
we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, speaking to believers, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 15, Paul describes the reality that our works will be tested through fire. What is worthless will be burned up. The time that we've wasted will be gone. We will suffer loss for wasting our gifts on worthless things. Whatever work we do that survives the judgment, whatever we choose that is excellent, for that work, we will receive a reward. Paul is very clear. This judgment does not determine heaven or hell. This judgment determines the quality of your reward. He says, those who have made poor choices who haven't pursued excellence, who have been lazy, who have been disobedient, they will be saved, but he says, but as through fire. The idea is your experience in eternity will be different based on your pursuit of knowledge and of discernment and of excellence right now. Every choice you make matters. And so his prayer is that they would be blameless before Christ. And to be perfectly clear, he not only tells you why he's praying this, but he tells you how it is possible that you be blameless before Christ. Look at verse 11 with me. He says, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He is so careful in how he writes that sentence. He makes it incredibly clear that we receive Jesus' righteousness when we believe the gospel. We are saved by grace. And so the excellence that he's talking about, the things that we need to pursue, are the fruit of that relationship as we look to Jesus Christ in faith. We are not being judged on our works to see if we go to heaven or hell. The reality is, no one is good enough to deserve heaven. We are being judged by our works to see the extent of our faith in Christ. Because genuine faith will always produce righteousness. It will always produce Good works. Read the book of James. That's what James tells us. Read the book of John. That's what John says. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will produce much fruit. It's not through your own effort. It's by receiving what Jesus has done for you. And as you receive Jesus Christ by faith, the stronger your faith is, the better you know him, the more you understand him, the more your life will become like his. And you will produce this fruit of righteousness. I like to think, and I've said it in the past, but I, I think it's worth saying again. I like to think very concretely in terms of the gifts of the Spirit. What is fruit? It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. Those are behavior styles that are ap applied in every sphere of our life. And so one way for me to know, am I walking in step with the Spirit? 
is I can time with my watch how long it takes me to lose patience with my three-year-old. It's a practical, real-world sphere that helps me know if I'm really walking in the Spirit. The same is true of my relationship with my wife. You can think of the fruit of the Spirit as being a litmus test for the quality of your relationship with the Lord. And that relationship is applied in how you treat your family. And it's applied in how you work, in how you study, in every area. As I, as I close the message today, I want to say a couple of things. Paul ends this verse, and I can't neglect this. He says, to the glory and praise of God. All of this is directed at what God has chosen to do through Jesus Christ. God is glorified when we place our faith in Jesus and when that faith transforms us into the image of his son. People can't help but praise God when they see the miraculous change that takes place because of conversion. So the second area of fruit that is produced through this faith is when more and more people come to faith in Jesus Christ, as they see your testimony, as they hear about Jesus, and their lives are changed, and that results in the praise of God. So you might be asking yourself, his prayer at the most basic level is for love. How can you get that? How do you do it? How do you increase your love? Some of us have natural affections for things that are not godly. Some of us struggle to have emotional affection at all. How do you increase your love? Well, I want to notice two things as I end the message. I began saying, I want to learn how to pray the way Paul prays here. So often when we sit down to pray, we pray about two, two major things. We pray about financial fears and we pray about physical ailments. Paul has not mentioned either of those at all. On some level, it's good to pray for those things, but something's wrong if that's all that we pray for. The reality is, this is far more important. And so, one aspect of how do you grow your love? Pray for it. Pray for each other. I, as your pastor, I will pray for you. Please pray for me. All of us need to grow in this. There's no limit to this. If you're a loving person, you could be more loving. If you're an unloving person, you need to begin. So the first thing I would like to encourage you to do, use this verse as a model of prayer. For the people you care for most, for our missionaries, for our ministries, pray that we pursue excellence that is rooted in knowledgeable discernment that comes from a place of love. Be faithful to pray. The second thing that I'd like to encourage is that I want this prayer to be true of us. So as it's applied, I pray that we would grow in love and in knowledge and in discernment and that we would pursue what is excellent. That we would have the grace that when we disagree with each other about what excellence is, that we would still love one another and be forgiving towards each other and build each other up. So I mentioned earlier, what's best with your money? Do you honor God with how much you give, how much you keep? What about your use of time? Do you use the time that you have well? 
Are you seeking to know the Lord better? How? Are you seeking to grow in your knowledge? How do you seek to grow in your knowledge? Can you honestly say that what you do in your leisure time is what's best for you? There is no room for complacency, even if there is room for disagreement. We need to strive for excellence. What are you doing to spread the gospel right now? Could you commit to to supporting missions more? Could you commit to sharing your faith with someone? What about with your kids or with your grandkids? What are you doing to be a good parent or a good grandparent? You have to be intentional. Because our default is not to be loving, knowledgeable, and discerning. So my prayer today is that we would put this in practice in every area of our life. And the most basic thing is that all of us need more love. And so, again, how do you get that? Well, John wrote in 1 John that we love because he first loved us. We love Because he first loved us. And so I believe that today, if you struggle to love, you need to meditate on what God has done for you. You need to ponder the reality that in eternity past, he decreed that the son would die for the sins of mankind. You need to think through the agony of the cross, what Jesus endured for you because he loved the entire world. And you need to understand God's love for you. And if you understand God's love for you, your love will grow. One way that I would encourage you to do that is come to the Good Friday service here. It will be a meditation of what Jesus Christ endured for you in his sufferings. And you will know the depth of God's love as you meditate on what Jesus did for you, and your love will grow. Let's pray and ask him to do that in us right now. Our Father in heaven, I pray that here at First Baptist Church of Holly, and in every church around the world, that our love may abound more and more, With knowledge, may we eagerly seek knowledge. With discernment, may we apply knowledge with great wisdom. And may we approve what is excellent in every area of life and ministry. May we be pure and blameless at the day of Jesus Christ. May we be full of the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And may you be glorified and praised for all of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.